This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode covering Homer's Odyssey. And Christy, are we finally getting to Odysseus this week? Yes, we finally meet our title character. It was an Odyssey. Oh, weak puns. <laughs> I know, but we are going to see you wordplay this week. Although wordplay through translation, I guess, isn't quite the same, but the Greeks were known for wordplay and not just in the Odyssey, so it's nice to get a little taste. Oh, that sounds interesting. It really is. Homer, even though he wrote in verse, remember, he used meter. It didn't rhyme, but he does use a lot of wordplay, which, you know, some say they're puns, some say they aren't. Uh, he plays around regardless with the meaning of words, and that's going to come out at the end of the podcast today. Well, you know, in episode one, we discussed a lot of the historical context, um, both of the period in which the story is set, but uh, also the mysterious writer, the, the supposed blind bard that we've always called Homer. Uh, I did notice we do finally get to meet the blind bard of the Odyssey, the one the ancients think might be based on our poet. But I'm not sure I would have even have paid much attention to that character if we hadn't talked about Demodocus being the model for Homer previously. No, I agree. Uh, it's likely he wouldn't have stood out. But it's a kind of an interesting literary concept, if you think about it. At one point in the story, there's a bard telling a story about a bard telling a story, and there's the story. So we have a story within a story Within a story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, let's just move on. Then. I know. In episode two, we discussed Telemachus and his coming-of-age story that we call the Telemachy, or books one through four. In that portion of the story, we learned that swarms of suitors have overrun the family back home in Ithaca while Odysseus is away. Telemachus's mother, Odysseus's wife, her name is Penelope, is being pressured to pick one of these suitors to be her husband. Uh, that's an act that would give the selected suitor a claim to be the king or the chieftain of Ithaca. 
leaving Telemachus's life in extreme danger. We saw that Penelope tricked the suitors by claiming she would marry one of them after she weaved a funeral shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes. During the day, she would weave, but at night she would unravel her work, and for three years this worked until one of her ladies' maids gave her up. And if the guys couldn't figure it out before then, that doesn't seem much for them. <laughs> I know. So it is at this point that we enter the story of Telemachus. Athena visits him, first in the shape of an old friend of Odysseus's, Mentes, uh, but then in another man named Mentor. She encourages Telemachus to take charge of his own future, to go out into the world and try to find out what has happened to his father by visiting his father's old war buddies. Telemachus listens to Athena, and he visits two places, Pylos and Sparta. Here he learns very little, honestly, uh, about what happened to his father, but what we do see is Telemachus coming into his own. We see his confidence, you know, his uh, sense of self is developing to the point he seems quite a different person as he journeys back home ready uh, to confront, you know, the very dangerous challenge of taking control over his own home or really basically retaking a kingdom that's been taken away from him. That's it, exactly. And today we will see where Odysseus has been this whole time. The goal today is to get through book nine, the start really of book 10. Uh, it's kind of a chronological boomerang. We start in book five, 20 years after Odysseus has left home. Calypso, the goddess that has been holding him captive for seven years, is forced to release him, which she does. Poseidon is outraged about this and reacts. Gary, let's begin by reading Poseidon's response. I'll give that man his swamping fill of trouble. With that, he rammed the clouds together, both hands clutching his trident, churned the waves in the chaos, whipping all the gales from every quarter, shrouding over in thunderheads the earth and sea at once, and night swept down from the sky. East and south winds clashed in the raging west and north. Spring from the heavens, roiled heaving breakers up, and Odysseus' knees quaked. His spirit, too, numb with fear, he spoke to his own great heart. Wretched man, what becomes of me now at last? And of course, the answer is, well, you're not going to die. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The gods will see to that. But he is shipwrecked, and then he's found naked on the beach by... Nausicaa, the daughter of King Alcinous, ruler of the incredibly gracious and skilled Phaeacians. And of course, it is through these people we see an incredible example of what the Greeks call xenia, and basically how Homer defines what it means in this world to be a good person. And the Homeric world, or really the ancient Greek world, if we can generalize, what makes a person good or bad isn't the same as we think of today. Ironically, things have changed. So Gary, let's just start out in general and talk about this concept, which we call Xenia. Okay. Uh, it's a concept of hospitality. Uh, that is an extremely complex and uh, highly developed social institution in the ancient Greek world. If we break down the word, uh, the word xenos, that means both guest friend or guest stranger. Um, if you think of the word xenophobia, it means you have a fear or hatred of strangers. So 
Xenia is how you receive or treat strangers in your community, your oikos, your household, and uh, well-executed Xenia solidified relationships between peoples, and it created alliances and could often you know, really be the difference between life and death. Um, it was also religious. One of Zeus's names is Zeus Xenios because he was the god that embodied this moral obligation to be hospitable to foreigners or strangers. And it's that moral element that is so central to so much of what we should understand about why things happen the way they do in the Homeric world. In Homer's world, hospitality drives morality. Now, let's think about that. It's in the hosting, receiving, gift giving, and relationship building that the world, the movement of the world is being pushed forward. It's what gets you in favor or in trouble with the gods. If you're a good host or a good guest, you're a good person. If you're a bad host, if you're a bad guest, then you're a bad person. Uh, It's really in some ways that simple. The moral code that determines your place in life is not based on the Ten Commandments or anything like that. It's not based on lying, if you steal or not, or even if you murder or not. These are the things that we've used to define morality. But if you think about it, all three of those things, Odysseus does all the time, and he's often admired about how well he lies and steals and murders. The gods are proud of him. He's called cunning. He brags about sacking villages. The climax of the entire epic involves broad-scale murder. That's a slight spoiler. <laughs> slight? If, well, you know, it's been 3,000 years, so if you don't know the ending, I guess there's nothing we can do. <laughs> but there's definitely no morality around sex at all. The definition of who you are as a person is very dependent on something else. And that something else is what the ancients call Xenia, this concept of being a good host, being a good guest. Gary, from our standpoint today, it feels weird. We don't value hospitality that way at all. And on the other side, we look poorly on people who are pirates, liars, (laughs) thieves, or adulterers. True. Um, It's a very interesting way of thinking about things and and something we should think about. Uh, Of course, obviously, and I know you weren't being exclusionary, uh, but there are other values really emphasized in Homer's epics, you know, respect for the gods, being a wise and moderate person, uh, not to mention you are supposed to avenge the death of family members. Uh, that's also part of the moral code, but your point cannot be overstated more. The importance of hospitality is essential to success in life, and there are very good and obvious practical reasons for this, even if we don't understand them in our current culture. Uh, just to clarify what we're talking about, even before we get to book five, we've seen examples of this in every chapter of the epic already. Telemachus was a good host to Mentes in the very beginning. Nestor and Menelaus are amazing hosts Telemachus. And now Asinius is even more gracious than the other two. In fact, he brings Odysseus home, even though he'll do so at a severe cost to himself, as we'll find out here in a bit. Hmm, true. Uh, you know, but the concept of Xenia is not just inherent in Greek culture. Um, it was also important in other cultures and other parts of that ancient world at that time. And if you want an example that you might be familiar with from this time period, and if you're familiar with biblical text, uh, we see similar things in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Abraham was very concerned about being a good host as well as a good guest. And we see various interactions of him being a guest when he wanders around Canaan. Uh, 
And just as the gods in the Odyssey punish and murder those who do not respect the rules of hospitality, there is a perspective that suggests that the Hebrew God of the Bible also punishes those who do not respect the rules of hospitality. I mean, you know, just look at Sodom and Gomorrah and um, how the destruction of that town is set up by the abuse of guests in the community. Uh, how you receive strangers very much defines your humanity in many cultures and has for a long time. This idea of morality being connected to hospitality is really very ancient and deeply embedded in various ancient cultures. Well, in the Odyssey, there are at least 12 hospitality scenes of all kinds. Well, that must be important. I know. We see examples of bad hospitality as well as examples of good hospitality. In Book 5, we see both just deposed against each other, almost back-to-back. In Polyphemus, the Cyclops, we see almost a perfect example (laughs) of what it means to be a bad host. But he isn't the first character uh, in the epic to violate the rules of Xenia. For that, we don't have to get past book one in the suitors. Those guys are clearly terrible guests. They're terrible humans, so much so that we don't feel a bit sorry for any of them when they get what's coming in the end. But before we get there, let's start this review again. You know, what does it mean? What does this concept consist of? The idea of being a host. It's so central to the story. How should we understand and stand it in terms of culture? And how can we extrapolate that cross-culturally to ourselves? Why is hospitality important to the degree that it's a motif in almost every book of the epic? In fact, it's a type scene. A type scene, uh, that's a new term, Christy. What's a type scene? Sure. A type scene is a scene that you're going to see over and over again. It feels like a pattern. You become familiar with it to the point that you can recognize differences and how different people are practicing this same pattern or the same type, so to speak. Uh, In the Iliad, for example, there's this thing about how people put on armor. There's the procedure. It's a type scene. It happens over and over again. And you can see the pattern and you can see differences. Holding sacrifices is another type scene. It happens over and over again. There are many different kinds of type scenes at the disposal of the bard, and he uses them to set up his story. We you know, don't have time, obviously, to feature all of them. But I think it's important to talk about this one about hospitality because it's so relevant to what the Odyssey is all about from my perspective. I know that's contested. Like I said before, uh, here we have 12 hospitality scenes. So there's a lot of emphasis, and it sets off the plot in Chapter 1. It creates complications throughout. And in some ways, we can watch how Odysseus evolves as a character every time he interacts with a new host. We watch him develop as he reveals who he is or who he doesn't reveal who he is. We get back to this idea of gift giving and hospitality. That becomes something to pay attention to. But just gift giving in general, let's talk about that before we you know, make it specifically about the Odyssey. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, um, I'm assuming you enjoy gifts. Oh, yes. I love receiving them. (laughs) Well, first of all, let's recognize uh, that we are in an ancient world consisting of mostly isolated islands. Uh, There are no hotels. There's no restaurants. There's not even really money or currency that can be used, you know, because uh, basically the Chinese are given credit in being the first to come up with this concept of money. But that wasn't until, you know, around 770 B.C. So. 
Just in that regard, you can see how important relationships would be just on a survival level. Uh, bartering obviously did exist, but in general, if a person is going to travel, he will have to rely on mercy from other people to survive. And of course, that's how ancient societies worked. Um, you know, again, a, a parallel example of ancient text would be the stories of the Old Testament and the Bible, if you recall. I mean, people went into the lands of others and threw themselves at the mercies of those rulers. So, in some sense, um, the idea of emphasizing hospitality on a macro scale makes sense. I'll host you if you'll host me. But that doesn't answer the second question. Why all these gifts? You would think that the one given a gift would be the one being hosted. Uh, he or she, after all, is the one being fed and being clothed. And you would also think that if you were a rat of a human, and so many of us are rats, <laughs> you uh, should just go around and exploit person after person. Collecting gifts. <laughs> yes. And notice, you can see this through the many scenes of hospitality. You are supposed to feed and bathe a guest before you even ask their name or their business. Uh, that was the ethics of the tradition. Uh, so the question is, why give gifts after all that? Well, of course, I don't know. Uh, but the obvious first pass guess, and maybe it's the idea of reciprocity, I'm going to host you today, knowing that one day that balance of power may shift and I'll need your hospitality. I'll give you a good gift so that one day you'll give me a good gift, that sort of thing. Except now that I say that out loud, that kind of fails to say out loud <laughs> to us. We just finished the Christmas season. And if you're a person who practices gift giving, you know that there are always those people who will shaft you. I mean, how many of us this year drew names? You're supposed to buy a gift for a person and spend up to a certain amount. And we all shudder when we see that the person who drew our name is the person that shafts all the time. <laughs> you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the original price was the money limit. I just was clever and got it on sale or whatever they have to tell themselves, which, of course, we all know is bogus. But sometimes people don't even do that. They just shaft you because it's a holiday party. What are you going to do? That sort of thing. I can't imagine the Greeks didn't have those kind of schmucks. <laughs> I think schmucks are universal. <laughs> well, we know they had those schmucks. They all moved into Penelope's house in book uh -huh. one. Mm -hmm. So back to the question, why give gifts? Reciprocity can't explain it. I can see that it might make society better and kinder. I just don't think in practicality it's going to work out. It doesn't even work out in holiday parties. There you are, you with your Western <laughs> rationality. And, uh, of course, the first reason is it makes you a good person. And it pleases the gods. And we want to be good people. And we all want to please the gods. We just do. Uh, even those of us who unfortunately find ourselves incarcerated for terrible things we've done to other people will likely not ever want to give up the idea that they are good people. Um, we want others to see that in us. And we want the gods to see that in us. And of course, we see that idea here. The gods will reward generosity and hospitality. Which brings us to Alcinous's daughter. She truly is depicted as being a wonderful human being. Uh, she's brave and she's generous. And when uh, uh, Odysseus winds up on her shore and approaches her and begs her for mercy, uh, this all comes out. Let's read that section. Compassion, princess, please. You, after all that I have suffered, you are the first I've come to. I know no one else, none in your city, no one in your land. Show me the way to town. Give me a rag for cover, just some cloth, some wrapper you carried with you here. And may the good gods give you all your heart desires, husband and house and lasting harmony too. 
No finer, greater gift in the world than that. When man and woman possess their home, two minds, two hearts that work as one, despair to their enemies and joy to all their friends, their own best claim to glory. Stranger, the white-armed princess answered staunchly, Friend, you're hardly a wicked man and no fool, I'd say. It's Olympian Zeus himself who hands our fortunes out to each of us in turn, to the good and bad, however Zeus prefers. He gave you pain, it seems. You simply have to bear it. But now, seeing you've reached our city and our land, you'll never lack for clothing or any other gift. The right of worn-out suppliants come our way. I'll show you our town, tell you our people's name. Phaeacians we are, and we hold this city and this land. And I am the daughter of the generous King Alcinous, and all our people's power stems from him. But of course, uh, as we can clearly see here in Nausicaa, the princess is an exceptional person, and not very many of us are as wonderful as this girl. So uh, I don't think reciprocity fully explains the concept of gift-giving. Of course, I don't know for sure, but one perspective to consider here is in really watching the balance of power. Remember, primitive societies, they didn't have Interpol or United Nations or anything like that. Uh, But that doesn't mean they still didn't have complex systems of interacting. And when you show up on someone's shore, the smart thing for the person on the shore to do is to kill you at the (laughs) get-go. And in fact, that's what happened a lot. Uh, Man, after all, is a warring being and societies historically go to war. And that is where I see the value of gifts. The currency of today and the currency of the ancient world in one sense is the same. Uh, And that currency is fame. Uh, reputation, power, glory, status. I mean, isn't that what people buy with their money, a higher place on the hierarchy? Today, we literally buy it with money. Uh, We can and do buy VIP seating and VIP lounges and private playing exclusive clubs, name brands, and for what, although I have not personally experienced all (laughs) these. Me neither. These things showcase that we are more important than other people, uh, it's our social rank, no matter how egalitarian we claim to be. In the ancient world, um, just as today, greatness was defined by a reputation. It was defined by fame and glory. And, and how that happens is by giving and getting, and it builds the reputation. So if we look at uh, what actually happens in this particular story, what I notice is that, for one, these tokens matter economically. Um, and this particular family which is described as being a cunning family, uh, are good at amassing wealth by being recipients of great gifts. And we certainly see it in Odysseus, but we also see it in Telemachus, who actually negotiates his gifts. But And, and even Penelope is very smart in collecting gifts and building her own wealth. Uh, but let's look at it from the, the other side of things. What the giver gets in exchange is also of great value. The giver of each gift is sending with the recipient a signal to everyone who sees the gift. He's sending a message of his great reputation. Um, Everyone is reminded that King Menelaus is great every time he sees an artifact that came from his kingdom. And everyone is reminded not to mess with a man as grand as can afford to give away, you know, something as great as all these gifts. But the giver is also building personal indebtedness that can extend across generations. I mean, we see that when Telemachus visited his father's friends. This networking extends reputation and gift exchange is also a tool with which the hierarchy is established. Well, in the case of King Alcinous, 
He had a tremendous reputation for greatness and was, and I shall quote this passage, obeyed like a god. We could talk quite a bit about this banquet that King Asinus and Queen Arete throw in honor of their guests. There's the recognition scene, there's the games, etc. But let's jump ahead to the Cyclops. I've been having my eye on that. <laughs> It's just fun to read. And of course, it brings up one of the reasons why the book is so popular, because this book is readable at every level. We can read it for a psychological or anthropological understanding of humanity, but it's just as fun and worthy to read these gory descriptions of a dude poking out another <laughs> you dude's eye. You must be average dude. We got we to recognize that. I know. So let's jump straight to book nine. The bard in book eight has been telling Odysseus' story, but now Alcinous is making Odysseus tell his own story. And finally, Odysseus will have to confess his identity. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, known to the world for every kind of craft. My fame has reached the skies. Sunny Ithaca is my home. Atop her stands our sea mark, Mount Neriton's leafy regions shimmering in the wind. And on he goes to describe his homeland. The first story he tells is about sacking and plundering the Circonians, killing the men, sacking the city. By our standards, we might describe it as sheer pirating, but it's not shameful in this context. The shame comes at the end when his stupid men get drunk and allow the Circonians to come back. And he says, quote, out of each ship, six men at arms were killed. So there's an example of how a lot of these interactions between people go. Somebody invades, they war, they invade, they get they get pushed back. But after the Sakonis, we get to the Lotus Eaters. <laughs> the, the Lotus Eaters story is famous, too. And I love um, how the Percy Jackson movie portrayed the Lotus Eaters as being a casino in Las Vegas. And the men just kind of losing track of time, uh, as so many have, in those corridors that... Uh, Connect the Palazzo to the Venetian or to Bally's to Paris. Well, of course I agree. Las Vegas is a perfect analogy. The passage about the Lotus Eaters is short, especially for how famous it is. So let's just remember those famous Lotus Eaters. Lotus Eaters who have no notion of killing my companions, not at all. They simply gave them the Lotus to taste instead. Any crewman who ate the Lotus, the sweet honey-sweet fruit, lost all desire to send a message back, much less return. Their only wish to linger there with the lotus eaters, grazing on lotus, all memory of the journey home dissolved forever. But I brought them back, back to the hollow ships and streaming tears. I forced them, hauled them under the rowing benches, lashed them fast and shouted out commands to my other steady comrades. Quick, no time to lose. Embark in the racing ships, so none could eat the lotus and forget the voyage home. They swung aboard at once. They sat to the oars in ranks, and in rhythm churned the water, white with stroke on stroke. <laughs> you know, I've heard this passage described really as people high on drugs. Um, 
but we may be too quick to think to go the route of you know mental incapacity. But uh, when the men go back to their boat, they are aware that they're being forced to leave, and they even cry about it. And it's not their perceptions that are impaired; it's their will that's impaired. Uh, you know, the bedazzling experience of the present has totally obliterated any sense of time, as well as any concern about other experiences in the future. And Uh, It's a metaphor for a lot of things beyond drugs that have this effect, although drugs definitely, unfortunately, do this in the extreme. Yes, and you're right. There are those other things, um, a.k.a., shall we say, TikTok. (laughs) You're talking about a different drug now. I know. You know, our good friend Christiana the other day uh, was on TikTok, and and she's my age. We're not talking about a child. Anyway, her complaint was, because she doesn't do this all the time, that she spent an hour drifting through video after video. She was entertained, for sure. But after an hour, she looked up and realized that she'd been there an hour and could not remember a single thing that she had seen. The videos were just too short to even stick in her short-term memory, and this annoyed her because she couldn't account for anything, not even a memory of her time. She remarked that she literally had nothing to show for it. Lotus eaters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That TikTok's an excellent example of that. So, uh, and I guess Instagram and Facebook aren't a whole lot better. Uh, but let me ask you this. Is, is that an example of good zinnia or bad zinnia? <laughs> well, maybe just a little sidebar until we get to the big zinnia. The story of the Cyclops. Hmm. A couple of things to notice as we compare the story of Polythemus as host to the story about King Alcinous and Queen Arete is the reception of Odysseus. While the Phaeacians, we see a positive example of what it means to be a good person. We see a great and confident leader, and he's built a great and confident and good community. Homer is going to juxtapose this with a different community, a dysfunctional community that doesn't work at all. We're going to see that it that this is what it means to be a bad person, a bad leader, and to live in a bad society. Remember uh, that I said that a type scene is a scene where you recognize the pattern? Well, the pattern to receive a guest by this point in the book has been well established. It's happened a bunch of times. We're now into book eight. Polyphemus does everything absolutely wrong. He's the opposite of a good person. And the Cyclops society is the opposite of a good society. Besides the hospitality scene, we're also going to have a botched assembly scene, which is a different type scene. Uh, We've had several assemblies already before. If you remember, Telemachus called assembly when they met and passed around the scepter back in the beginning. But anyway... Polyphemus is going to call an assembly, and that doesn't go well because these are barbaric, worthless people. They're they're awful. <laughs> so let me get back to the hospitality scene. In a traditional hospitality scene, you're supposed to approach the visitor, welcome the visitor, seat, feed the visitor, offer the visitor a drink, ask them the visitor's name, exchange information, entertain the visitor, allow the visitor to bathe, sleep. Of course, you have to try to detain the visitor. You're supposed to give the visitor a gift, make a sacrifice to the gods, and finally escort the visitor to the next destination. We saw that with Telemachus. We've seen that before over and over again up to this point. With that in mind, let's look how Polyphemus treats the traditions of civilized life. First of all, Polyphemus isn't even there. But when he gets there, before he does anything else, the first thing he does, which you're not supposed to do, is ask them who they are. Let's read that. Strangers, he thundered out. Now who are you? 
Where did you sail from over the running sea lanes? Out on a trading spree or roving the waves like pirates, sea wolves raiding at will who risk their lives to plunder other men? And of course, they answer him, not by stating who they are, but who they've been with and bringing up the idea that, you know, they could be okay with getting a guest gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't go well. No, let's read how it goes. <laughs> Not a word in reply to that, the ruthless brute, lurching up, he lunged out with his hands toward my men, and snatching two at once, wrapping them on the ground, he knocked them dead like pups. Their brains gushed out all over, soaked the floor, and ripping them limb from limb to fix his metal, he bolted them down like a mountain lion and left no scrap, devoured entrails, flesh, and bones, marrow, and all. We flung our arms to Zeus. We wept and cried aloud, looking on at his grisly work, paralyzed, appalled. But once the Cyclops had stuffed his enormous gut with human flesh, washing it down with raw milk, he slept in his cave, stretching out along his flocks. So you see, he misunderstood the memo. Instead of feeding the guests, (laughs) (laughs) he eats them. It can't get worse than that, but there are more oppositions to pay attention to. Instead of the host offering the guest wine, Odysseus, and of course this is a panic, offers polyphemous wine. And instead of Odysseus revealing his real identity, he conceals it. He tells Polyphemus his name is nobody, or no man, depending on the translation you're reading. And of course, Polyphemus likes the wine so much He decides, okay, I'll give you a parting gift. But the gift is terrible. Let's read that. So he declared, I poured him another fiery bowl. Three bowls I brimmed and three he drank to the last drop. The fool. And then when the wine was swirling around his brain, I approached my host with a cordial winning word. So you ask me the name I'm known by, Cyclops. I will tell you, but you must give me a guest gift as you've promised. Nobody, that's my name, nobody. So my mother and father call me all my friends. But he boomed back at me from his ruthless heart. Nobody, I'll eat nobody last of all his friends. I'll eat the others first. That's my gift to you. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's not very hospitable. No, Uh, the scholars tell us that this scene actually has Four examples of wordplay if we could read and understand the original Greek. But of course, in our translation, we can only see one. And it's kind of fun that it works even as one. But it is this wordplay that has interested so many and sets the primary complications for the 10 years, for the next 10 years of Odysseus's life. Odysseus manages to get Polyphemus drunk. He and his crew stab him in the eye very infeasibly. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> infeasibly. <laughs> With a piece of wood that they made out of embers. Again, I don't know how the science of that, but let's read it anyway. I dragged it from the flames, my men clustering around as some god breathed enormous courage through us all, hoisting high that olive stake with its stabbing point. Straight into the monster's eye, they rammed it hard. I drove my weight on it from above and bored it home as a shipwright bores his beam with the shipwright's drill. That men below, whipping the strap back and forth, whirl, and the drill keeps twisting faster, never stopping. So we seized our stake with its fiery tip, 
and bored it round and round in the giant's eye till blood came boiling up around that smoking shaft and the hot blast singed his brow and eyelids round the core and a broiling eyeball burst. Its crackling roots blazed and hissed as a blacksmith plunges a glowing axe or adze in an ice-cold bath and the metal screeches steam and its temper hardens. That's the iron strength. So the eye of the Cyclops sizzled around that stake. See, you just can't make this stuff up. It's that fun. <laughs> well, of course, um, Odysseus gets away because he's smart and he's patient and he's more cunning. All those things that gods reward. Uh, Polyphemus, you know, of course, there's more details of how they actually get out. But he's left and he is left to cry to his father, Poseidon which in some ways is the correct thing to do. You are supposed to pray to the gods before your guest leaves, but not in this sense. Finally, Odysseus leaves, but he's not being escorted like, you know, the type scene would tell you to do. Instead, he has to flee for his life as Polyphemus throws boulders at him. Ironically, however, all of this wouldn't have mattered. Odysseus could have gotten away and we wouldn't have even had a story to tell except for the lines that Odysseus blurts out once he feels like he's safely far away and he knows he'll escape. Let's read those. I called back with another burst of anger. Cyclops, if any man on the face of the earth should ask you who blinded you, shamed you so, say Odysseus, raider of cities, he gouged out your eye, Laertes' son who makes his home in Ithaca. So there he does it. He just can't be a nobody. (laughs) He had to tell who he was. He wanted him to know. And isn't that what takes all of us on so many personal odysseys? We don't want to be a nobody. We would lose something of our humanity. It's our identity. That's what we're looking for in some sense. It's what the whole of life experience is about in many ways. Who are we? We're not nobody. At least we hope we're not. (laughs) We want to be somebody, at least somebody to somebody. How well Homer nails us. But I'm (laughs) five. I can't see eye to eye on that. Well, you know, it's an idea that we see Homer taking with us for the rest of the books. Um, Odysseus will reclaim his name. He will define it. Um, It's what defines your home, the place where you are somebody. But another point to make, and and I don't want to leave this discussion of uncivilized people without making mention of this one other thing. There's something very interesting to notice in Poseidon's prayer. Uh, You know, if I'd been blinded and I had a magical father with powers, I might pray for my eyesight back. But that would be the the most helpful thing moving forward, at least you think. But that's not what Polyphemus does. So let's read it. But at that he bellowed out to Lord Poseidon, thrusting his arms to the starry skies and prayed, Hear me, Poseidon, God of the sea blue main who rocks the earth. If I really am your son and you claim to be my father... Come grant that the Odysseus, raider of cities, Laertes' son, who makes his home in Ithaca, never reaches home. Or if he's fated to see his people once again and reach his well-built house in his native country, let him come home late and come a broken man, all shipmates lost, 
alone in a stranger's ship and let him find a world of pain at home. So he prayed, and the god of the sea blue main, Poseidon, heard his prayer. <laughs> so he'd rather have revenge than his own eyesight. I don't know that I would have made that choice. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's fascinating to me that when Homer wants to finish his description of what a pitiful example of a living, breathing lowlife is, what a totally uncivilized society looks like, he starts by saying, it's a group of people who do no work. They produce nothing. They have no assemblies. They don't live well in community. Uh, but he ends it with a prayer to seek vengeance in his final breath. I guess so. It's the worst in us all played out. A bad person would rather hurt another person than move forward. Well, off Odysseus goes. He thinks he's caught a break at the beginning of book 10 because he reaches the home of the King Aeolus, and it's a floating island, and this god receives him well. It's another hospitality scene. They go through all the things. He gets a great parting gift. He gives him a sack of winds. Aeolus binds up the winds from all the corners of the earth except the west wind, and that wind will blow Odysseus all the way to Ithaca. For nine days, he sails nonstop. He can see men tending fires on the beach of his hometown. He's made it. He can rest. But his men are greedy. Right before they get there, while Odysseus is asleep, the shipmates open the bag, wanting to sneak out treasure while Odysseus is watching. When they open the bag, all the winds come out at once, and they're blown all the way back to King Aeolus. Oops. <laughs> That's a real wind bag. <laughs> ah! Odysseus asks him to put the wind back in the box, but this time the king says no. Let's read these lines. Away from my island, fast, most cursed man alive. It's a crime to host a man or speed him on his way when the blessed, deathless gods despise him so. Crawling back like this, it proves the immortals hate you. Out! Get out! And so off he goes. And I guess it's time for us to go to <laughs> next episode. We'll pick up here with Circe and go through the rest of Odysseus's wanderings. I also want to talk a lot really about the role of women in the book, uh, because we're going to meet plenty of them. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Um, so we'll call it a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying our discussions as we work our way through this very influential classic. And as always, we hope you will uh, honor us by sharing an episode with a friend, either by text, email, or word of mouth. And please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And, of course, visit us at howtolovelitpodcast.com, where we have plenty of instructional materials if you're a teacher or a student. Also, follow us on any of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And if you'd like to receive our monthly newsletter, Please email Christy at Christy at HowToLoveLivePodcast.com. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.